Welcome to another episode of Conversations and Connections, a podcast produced by the Family Crisis Center of East Texas. I'm Stuart Burson, the Prevention Coordinator for the agency, and glad you could join us. Um, I was going to say today, but I never know when you're going to be listening to these. You could be listening in the middle of the night, so thanks listening uh with me today kelly carver hey kelly hi um kelly is uh, kelly works for the agency tell us what you do for the agents we were talking about this a little inside info we were talking about this actually before we were about to press record because uh uh right now you just you just do a number of things right i, I do actually i've accepted the position of the victim services coordinator um which actually houses out of our uh, Nacogdoches office, but I'm still uh, working my legal advocate position, which actually houses in our Angelina County uh, office. So I'm kind of doing a little bit of both things. Okay. Well, um, that's fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, So we're we're recording this today on a a Monday and uh, I was on vacation last week. Didn't do a darn thing. Well, I, I went to Houston for one day to see a friend of mine, uh, but we're off from the weekend. Did you do anything fun over the weekend? Yeah, I went to the lake, and I visited with some family, and we played cards, and just had a good old time. Well, awesome. Okay. Any good movies or anything or TV shows you're into right now or... God, I this is get to know Kelly. Yes. This is get to know Kelly moment right um, now. <laughs> let's see. TV shows. Uh, you know what? I'm an oldie but goodie. I like my Grey's Anatomy. So, Oh, wow. You know, okay. It's old, but I like it. It's still going on, though, right? It it, it's it's still near. So it's it, I wouldn't consider it old. Yeah. <laughs> so... Let's uh, so let's talk about uh, the issue of domestic domestic violence. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and um, about could you could you estimate? I guess about how many domestic violence cases do you receive? Let's say in a span of a month. Okay, so this is a really interesting question. I had to ask some people some numbers because I can tell you that as far as cases that I provide services to, it's probably on average somewhere between 20 and 30 cases a month. And that's people who are already working services and that's new people. So that's just me, legal advocate person. But the agency on a whole actually receives about 80 cases, average domestic violence cases in a month, and then about 30 uh, what they call DV dual clients in a month's time. So in a total, it's probably average about 100 clients a month are DV. Okay, and for those who don't know, what's what's a dual client? A dual client is somebody who's who's um, been in a domestic violence situation, but they've also uh, been sexually assaulted at some point in their life. Okay. And I guess that's one thing, you know, a lot of people, not all domestic violence situations involve sexual assault. Correct. You know. Uh, now, let's let's go back a little bit because you talked about your role as a legal advocate. You say you're still a legal advocate. What mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? What, what does it mean when you say you're a legal advocate, someone comes to you, you're going to give them legal advocacy services. What What is that? So what that kind of looks like is if somebody's needing to go to court for some reason, um, 
then I'm going to provide that accompaniment. I'm going to possibly be that person that has some layman's terms like uh, conversations with them because I'm not an attorney. I'm not a judge. I'm not any of those things, but I'm somebody who knows about the court system, knows people within the court system to help them kind of, um, make the transition easier because the normal person, um, doesn't, is not familiar with how the court system works. Um, before I even had this role, I couldn't have told you half the things that I, that I now know. Um, that I'm I just going to ask you to talk just a little bit closer to the mic. Thanks. Okay. That I now know. And uh, so it takes some time to kind of uh, get used to and you talk to your clients about those things. Um, another thing is we can accompany them with law enforcement. So like if they need to make a report or something like that, we'll accompany them there. If they have to go to the hospital for some reason, then we're going to accompany them there. We are there to advocate for what their needs are, whether it's legal in, in the gray area is like medical advocacy, it, but still that's part of their, their situation. So I'm still going to attend and go with them. So like in the courtroom or are you speaking for them or are you just kind of there giving advice or oh i'm definitely not speaking for them okay yes um because i can't um because if you're speaking for them you're um one you're not empowering them and we're all about empowerment advocacy so we're wanting to make sure that they know that they can get through this um even if it's just me holding their hand they can still get through this um but i'm also not an attorney so i can't i can't sit with them like an attorney would and be able to say, um, these are the things my client wants. Okay. Okay. Sure. All right. Um, and, and we may in the, in the future, um, go a little deeper into just vic- uh, advocacy. I hate mm-hmm. to say the word victim, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, being a legal advocate, maybe we can get Charlie in here and really, talk about the legal aspects of, of, of everything. So besides being the legal advocate, what else do you do again? I'm now also, here? I'm now the victim services coordinator. Okay. So, uh, I'm going to go out on the limb and say you coordinate the services, uh, <laughs> for the people who come here. Um, yes, but it's more so for the Nacogdoches office. Um, so I'm helping the legal advocates, um, that are there in the Nacogdoches office office. So I'm kind of, it's not really training, but it's, I'm, I'm the person that they can come to and they can talk to if they need assistance, um, with working through their legal advocacy or, um, it's also like a supervisory role. So I'm making sure that, you know, I's are dotted and T's are crossed. Okay. So let's, I guess kind of take a, maybe a, a situation. Someone uh, is a survivor of a domestic violence situation and they come to the family crisis center for help. Okay. okay. What, what's the, what, what exactly is the process that, that someone goes through if they do need services? What do they need to do first? And if you don't mind, just kind of talk the steps along the way of what they go through here. Okay. I can do that. 
So, um, this, this is really like a two part question. We can have somebody that can just walk through our front doors and say they need services. Um, if we'll do an assessment on them, find out what their situation is. Um, if we can provide them with services that day, we'll do what's called an intake where we go over, um, you know, what services that the family crisis center actually provides, uh, to our clients. Or, um, if they're calling us over the phone, like on a hotline call, the same thing, we're going to assess them, see what, what they're needing, how we might be able to help them. Then we might schedule them for an intake or they may need, and, and then really like the, almost the flip side of this is if they need shelter, then we're going to try to immediately meet their needs, um, uh, and figure out, you know, how we can get them into the shelter, what we can coordinate, things like that. Then once they do the intake process, then they can, they've heard all of our services, basically, they've decided what they want to do moving forward with our agency. And then they could see a legal advocate, or they could just uh, attend counseling, or they could just need shelter. It's just depending, or they can need all those three things. So it really just whatever happens in the assessment, and then the intake is what determines what services we provide to them. When you do an assessment, about how long how long does that take? When someone comes in, I need services. You have to assess the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that, I mean, what, and, and without obviously yeah. divulging any thing that doesn't need to be divulged, but what are like, what, what are you trying to find out? So um, it could be anywhere from five to 15 minutes. It could be longer than that. I've had assessments take longer than that because when you start to ask a person their situation, what's going on, and they start talking, then they start talking. And you just wait until you hear it all. And then they could say um, when they're talking to you exactly what is needed. But, I mean, of course, we're the Family Crisis Center, so... I mean, we help victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, and we are uh, helping victims of human trafficking now also. So we're, we're at least need them to meet one of those three things. They're either a victim of domestic violence, they're a victim of sexual assault, or um, a human trafficking victim. So, okay. And I guess everybody's different. Some people probably have no problem at all telling you everything that's going on uh, in their life that and and what they're what they're here for. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure others may not be so forthcoming with maybe the information you need to know, and you might have to work it out of them. Work it out. Yes. yes. Yeah. 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 And that happens sometimes too. So um, there's no right or wrong questions. It's what I, it's what I tell everybody. You just start asking the questions. So you just, you know, how can I help you? And then they tell you what they're, they're needing. Okay. Well, and then if it's not, if you're not hearing what you think you need to be hearing, then you might try to rephrase the question, you know, um, what is your situation right now? What are you going through? Um, you just got to, Work it and figure out what's the right question. And, of course, if they never meet that or if they're just saying, you know, I just, I don't know, like I need just some furniture and, you know, I'm just, you know, looking for furniture for my apartment, you might realize that it's not ever going to be that situation or something. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's asking the right questions to elicit the right answer. Right. 
Yeah. Do you ever see people who've been here before? Yes. And if they've been here before, I guess it's a new situation, so you have to do the intake all over again? It or? could be a new situation or it could be the same situation. It's just that um, because statistically speaking, it takes a woman, and we're just talking about, if we're just talking about women, statistically speaking, it takes a woman seven to eight times to really leave. So the first time that they show up or the first time that we may see them, they may not be ready. Um, and we've at least told them what services that we can provide to them and maybe they've met with a legal advocate and they've talked to that legal advocate and they at least know some of the some of the services that we can provide um, to them and so they've got an idea of what they can plan kind of in their head and let's say we don't see them for six months down the road and then six months down the road they have another incident with the same person then now they know kind of what to expect and they can come back and they can start receiving services. Not every time does it warrant a new intake. Sometimes it's just updating services and, you know, moving forward with what's going on. Now, granted, sometimes it can be those that come back and it's somebody completely different. Um, and that, again, is not about doing another intake. It's doing about, uh, it's about doing different paperwork. It, it's weird, but it's about doing different paperwork. Sure. Does it ever professionally get frustrating when you see repeat people come in and, I mean, and I'm thinking you're probably saying to yourself, why are you still in this relationship? You know, you need to get out. I know you probably can't tell them that, or maybe you can. I don't know. I'm Again, I'm not on that side of of everything. We, uh, as advocates, we try not to ask like the question why. Um, simply, because, and that that's also like part of our contract. Also, or our client contracts are trying not to ask the questions why. Why for our victims and survivors are very. It's a very damaging question. Now, again, as the person we're probably already questioning ourselves in our head. Yes. Why is this going on and whatnot? But I'm never going to, as an advocate and I would never have another advocate actually question them. Why are they coming back? So to speak. Sorry. I I didn't mean to throw you a, a a curve there. No, uh... (laughs) no. Keep, keep them going. Uh, You know, and again, I I, kind of want to go back to the fact that we are the family crisis center. Mm-hmm. We're not the women's crisis center. Um, so in your career here, um, have you seen very many men come in seeking services? I have seen some men. So, um, and again, statistically speaking, we're not going to see a whole lot of men probably come in because men, for whatever reason, don't report a whole lot. But I have um, probably the Second year as a legal advocate, I've seen the most men um, in my career as a legal advocate. I've probably seen somewhere between 10 and 15 that year. Um, So it was a whole bunch uh, compared to previous years. Now, usually men are like one or two a year versus that. Do you take a different approach when talking to a male survivor um because it's like you said i think again 
this is Stuart saying, I think. There's probably more male victims or, excuse me, male survivors out there. But I think, like you said, men are going to be less likely to report, whether it's mm -hmm. from embarrassment or uh, shame, shame, mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. So when you have a male that finally has the the courage to come here and ask for help, do you do you approach a man different than a woman when you're doing an intake? I try not to approach them terribly different, but men and women's um, emotional levels are kind of different. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but I mean, I mean, Stuart, you are a man. I mean, I would think you would approach something differently than I would, so to speak. Sure. So, sure. I mean, I, I try to just, I'm a, I'm a, jumper inner if that's a word so i'm just an all-in type of person so i'm just gonna i'm gonna take both survivors male and female and we're just gonna figure out what we need to do and just go forward but there is different levels um of a female in crisis and a male in crisis um, well, it makes sense. I mean, I, or I, I think it does. I just, I guess I'm, I'm just thinking from a man's point of view, coming in, maybe being a little bit ashamed, maybe being embarrassed, and maybe having to even tell a woman mm -hmm. what I've gone through. Yes. You know, so... Anyway, I mean, I can I can definitely see it because especially if you're female, if the female is the perpetrator versus if it's a male on male perpetrator. Um, I don't know. I think it would be different telling a, a female that mm -hmm. this is um, something that's happened sure. to me. So, well, how big of a problem is domestic violence here in East Texas? Uh, is. Are people willing to accept the fact that. Domestic violence is going on here. I think a lot of times people want to say, oh, well, that's not happening in my neighborhood, or that doesn't happen here in our community, um, when a good well does. I think that's a great statement. Actually, I pondered this for um, a little bit because um, I would say that domestic violence here is probably just as big as if you would find it in a big city proportionate wise. Like even in a larger city, you're going to find tons of cases of domestic violence, but that's because it's a larger city. So you're, I mean, there's more people reporting and things like that, but this is, this is, um, rural East Texas, um, is definitely smaller. And so, um, some people don't want to report going back to that embarrassment or shame, um, especially if you come from a small town where everybody knows everybody um, and you don't want to report because that may have been the, you know, the, the football star or mm -hmm. I might have been the cheerleader and or, you know, um, it just could be anything. It, but with small towns, I think it's different. There's a different mentality um, for our victims uh, or survivors uh, about reporting there's a whole lot more um, that's just added on it onto it versus maybe a big city um, where the same amount of numbers is going on. It's just that you may not know the person sitting next to you. Sure, sure. Or I think of, you know, the well-known high-profile person um, and let's say their spouse 
uh, is a survivor of domestic violence, that spouse may not want to jeopardize that person's career if they're big in business or in politics or something like that, especially in a small town. Mm-hmm. So I can see where they may be reluctant to come forward. I mean, if we're just talking about like celebrities, the one celebrity that really comes to my mind when I'm talking about domestic violence is, of course, Rihanna and Chris Brown. And oh, yeah. That's the, and so their stuff, their celebrities, it was splashed all over the news. Um, you've seen it, and it was there every time you opened a site and whatnot. So then you've got small town who might be the equivalent to Rihanna or Chris Brown, and then seeing that splashed across like the newspaper, mm-hmm. I can see why people would not report and why it would go underreported. Sure. So in all these incidents that you see and all the intakes that you've, you've um, conducted o- over the years, is there a common thread that you kind of see or is everything just so different? It's just all over the place. So this was another good question um, that I had thought about. So, most of our um, clientele, of course, are low socioeconomic status. So a lot of them are not um, having a lot of money come in or uh, uh, have a lot of jobs. But that can go back to also uh, abuse. Um, <clears throat> because a lot of times abusers, um, whether they're male or female, doesn't want the other party to work. Um, whether it be jealousy or... Um, just that element of control to keep them in the home. Uh, now it's it's kind of hard also to answer, but I ha- in the same sentence because I have seen people who've made more money um, come into the agency and try to receive services, and we still provide them with the same level of services. It's just that for them, I think again going back to how big of a problem it is, they tend to see it more on a level of embarrassment and shame um, Mm -hmm. because they're big wage earners uh, within their their family and or community. And I guess what you just said, I guess it's kind of interesting that maybe some people, and there's no really reason to think this way, but I think a lot of people, the more money you make, the almost and I, the more smarter you are and you mm-hmm. shouldn't let yourself get into this situation mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. You, you know and and, I'm, and I want to emphasize that's the attitude people have I'm not saying that's no you a I think you're correct about that I think it's because we think because let's say the local you know an attorney walks in um, we figure they're educated enough that how could you get yourself into this kind of situation? But um, again, domestic violence, it's just, it's across the board and it's, and it's something, it's a problem that doesn't start out as domestic violence. Cause what we're thinking of is the beaten person, the, the person who's got the bruises and the marks all over their face, but that's not always the case. It always, I would say 99% of the time starts out as the mental manipulation um, or the taking of the money, the economic abuse. So Gaslighting. you don't, you don't see those things. You don't see those <clears throat> bruises because right. those are internal. Um, and so it takes time to see the bruises. And by then they could have been in a relationship for five years before the bruising actually starts. Yeah. So, okay. and, and I mean, I've also had people tell me, 
I've had lots of people tell me they would rather, which is um, a sad reality, they would rather be beaten more than they would like the mental manipulation because that hurts so much worse than the abuse itself. Wow. Yes. That's a powerful statement, and I've heard that many a times. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and I... Yeah. I guess in a way I can almost see that if you're in a relationship with someone who loves you, I can say like hurtful words and hurtful actions are just as bad. It is. <clears throat> I mean, so I can see that. And that's why sometimes our motto is love shouldn't hurt. And that's the truth. Like your words, um, lots of people say things like you're dumb. Or you're stupid. And they don't realize how, when you say that and how many times you say that to that partner that you love. Or nobody's going to want you because um, you've put on a few pounds or things like that. They don't realize how much that really, we internalize that and we hold that in and go, hmm, is somebody really going to want me if I put on 10 extra pounds? And then we don't leave. And then we stay, and then it just, it, the progression gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, I want to talk briefly about dating violence. You know, we talk about domestic violence, and I know you're a, as, as well as we are in prevention, a big advocate against dating violence. What separates the, or what is the difference, I guess I should say, between domestic violence and dating violence? Is it just the nature of the relationship or what goes in to differentiating between those two. When you're talking about dating violence, do you want to, are you specifically talking about maybe teen and young adult dating violence? Probably. Okay. So I guess, or like in call, yeah, young adults, mm-hmm. teens. Um, the, the difference is, is because if a lot of times we take love and stuff differently as a teen and a young adult than we do as somebody who's, 35 as a teen and young adult we are impressionable um because we we see these things like maybe these romantic movies or we read these books that say that you know um we should end up with that prince or things like that and i, and I guess i'm speaking as a female and we think that's how love should be. And then we get in a relationship where our boyfriend might be calling us 80 times and we think that's acceptable. We think that's something that's like, oh, my God, they called us 80 times. They must really love me. They must really love me. And we don't realize that that is actually dating violence. Or they text us. I, I can't even imagine how many people get how many texts people get. Um, I have a child. Well, I have two teenage girls, and I can't imagine how many texts they actually get and what they would ex- seem as extreme. But I would say probably more than a hundred texts in a day would probably be pretty extreme. But you know, you don't know. But it's also the nature of what's in those texts, like the "Where are you's" or "What are you doing" or "Who are you mm-hmm. with." Um, the constant need to keep tabs on your significant other um, is big within teen and young adult dating violence. And they don't see that as a problem. They see that 
as, oh, they love me because they're concerned about where I'm at and what's going on. And that's not always the truth. If you're in a good, healthy relationship, that person's going to trust that when you when you say, hey, I'm going to go hang out with my girlfriends, that that's what's going to happen. And that's what should happen. Sure. Okay. So. All right. Um, is there one particular success story that you can share? Okay, so I thought about this long and hard. So I want to, I want to, I really want to talk about this one. So there are different degrees of success when it comes to survivor stories. Um, a lot of people think it's the person that just, um, you know, maybe got the protective order or got got out, but it, it could be those things. Um, I would characterize any forward movement for our individuals who have been in a relationship as a success. Uh, so that means like I, I've talked to several people who've never gotten counseling, but now they're in counseling. That counseling's helping. That to me is success. Um, or that individual who just needed a home and a job so that they could be in their own home um, without um, somebody controlling their, them or their finances as success. So it's um, anytime, whatever their their goal is, and they've done it and they've accomplished it. I see that as a success. Uh, as a legal advocate, we do support groups. And last year, we really, I really talked about goals and things like that. Um, and those goals, and I talk about the small goals because a lot of times people want the big goals, which is I want to get that house, but how do you get to that house? So whatever you can check off for that day, such as I went and I applied for five jobs, that is a goal and that is successful. Just the fact that you got up, got dressed and went out and applied for five jobs is success. You cannot too many times, even, even without domestic violence, we've set that huge goal. And when we don't attain it really quickly, we get discouraged. So we've got to think in smaller terms. And that's what I try to tell them. Um, so that they know that they're being successful also. But I will, I will give a success, success story. Um, I had a, a client who was a victim of stalking by her uh, ex-husband or soon to be ex-husband. Um, and um, she had went to uh, law enforcement and talked to them about what was going on. And they were kind of um, dismissive of her. They read a few text messages and they thought, oh, this is... This is nothing. This is just text between two people who have been, I guess, lovers. I And I use quotation marks, lovers, who are in a relationship together. Um, and, and they just was like, this this really doesn't seem like that. But then as an advocate, and I'm like I said, I go all in. So I'm looking at all these text messages, and I'm noticing she's not replying back to these text messages. And these text messages are saying things that, you know, would indicate that they were together at the time he was sending the text messages. And then in the next breath, it would indicate that he hadn't heard from her in forever. And so then I went to law enforcement and advocated for her and they reopened the case. And sure enough, they deemed it as harassment and stalking. Um, the individual did get arrested and she was able to get her legal needs met. Um, that meant getting a protective order, uh, for herself and getting her divorce from this individual because she was ultimately married to this individual. So, um, and she was ultimately 
happy with the outcome. And that's what, that as an advocate is what I wanted for her. Whatever she could move forward with and what would make her happy and feel safe again is what I, as the advocate, that's my role for her. So that's, that, that was successful for her. Great. So let's, let's go back in our time machine. Okay. And think about little Kelly. Oh. In high school or college when you're trying to decide what you want to do with your life. What made little Kelly decide this is what you want to do? Or maybe it was older Kelly. Uh, but what made you decide you want to be an advocate? You want to help these survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault? It was definitely older Kelly versus younger Kelly. Older Kelly wanted to be an actress. And so or awesome. younger Kelly wanted to be an actress. And so awesome. uh, for a while I did some theater and stuff like that. So it's definitely older Kelly that made myself decide to pursue this career. Um, I have friends and of course they have family. And I've seen a lot of these families actually um, with parents who were not technically protective of their children and honestly I wanted to do child protective services so I went into social work for the I went into social work for the main reason to do child protective services um and then for my senior year we got we got a chance to do internships and the CPS there was only two that you could get placed and CPS took two and I wasn't one of those two and I knew I wanted to work with families, and I wanted to work with children. Those two things I did know. Um, and they placed me here at the agency. And it was, the to me, the single best thing that they could have done. I That I was passed over for Child Protective Services and that I was placed here. Um, it allowed me to really kind of open up and see that there are, um, you know, these things happening in the world that they do happen to different families. They happen to families here. Uh, they happen to families everywhere. And I just knew I want, I could still advocate for children and for families, uh, here at this agency. Um, and I knew I wanted to do it. Like I had this driving passion that I wanted to do this versus um, actually anything else. And so the the position actually came available and I, you know, I filled out for it. And here I am, you know, <laughs> uh, working with, uh, we say victims because you are, I mean, you fall victim to domestic violence or sexual assault, things like that, but you are really a survivor. And I, the one thing that I want people to take home with them that you start to become a survivor the minute you move yourself forward. So whether, whether it's picking up that phone and making that phone call and and you may never receive services with us, but it's picking that phone up or it's, um, walking through that front door, um, you're becoming that survivor because you're making the decision that you no longer, you're no longer going to be in this situation anymore. I want to ask you one more thing before we, before uh, we, we wrap up in a day's time or in, in a week, I can only imagine the stories you hear, the people you meet, uh, the situations uh, that, that these folks are in. What do you do 
at the end of the day, how do you uh, deal with everything, all the trauma and 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 everything that you um, hear about? How do you decompress? I guess may be the right mm-hmm. word. Uh, at the end of the day, what do you do? It's a whole bunch of things. So I will tell you in the first year, I really learned my lesson. Like I didn't, I thought I properly was able to decompress, put things in uh, what I call little boxes now um, in my brain. And I shut that box when I leave the office at the end of the day. Um, But the first year was hard. I took everything basically home with me and that box was open. It was like wide open and it was hard for me to decompress. Um, And I had one situation that just totally rocked my world enough that I was like, you've got to figure out how to shut these boxes at five o'clock or whenever I get off, you know, um, because you can't bring that home with you every day. Um, It'll, it'll, it'll affect you. I mean, some of these things that you hear is just, it's traumatizing to hear, let alone these, what these people are going through with on a daily basis. So basically at that point, I made a decision that when I walk out, you know, when I walk out the door at five o'clock in the afternoon or five 30 or six o'clock or whatever, I put everything I've heard in this box in my brain and I put the lid on that box and I don't open that box back up until 8 a.m. the next morning uh, whenever I walk through those doors. Um, But even before that, I just get in my car and I put music on and I just go to a different place before I get home to my babies because they don't need to... uh, see me dealing with all the trauma of everybody else's trauma, basically. Okay. And what you just said remind, prompted another question okay. I wanted to ask. As a parent of two young girls, mm-hmm. do you, does it make you more cautious or more fearful when they go out on a date or go out with friends is, or do you give them the, the lecture? Uh, and I, I guess I, besides what a normal parent would do, do you think your work here has made you more cautious as a parent? Oh yeah. And my, my girls will <laughs> tell you the same thing. Um, they're two different individuals, but, um, my oldest, uh, she's probably the more cautious and whatnot. And I still, I'm just like, okay, did you, do you remember this? Remember we talked about this or something like that. Now my other one, she likes to play the video games and things online. And I'm just like, I just like, okay. That's a whole nother world. It's a whole nother world because it's not even then about domestic violence. It could be about some perpetrator online trying to get her information. So I'm like, okay, don't be accepting any friend requests from anybody, you know. And sometimes I'm even like, let me see your phone. So every once in a while we just check in. So, oh, yeah. Having worked here and um, has changed a lot. Not a lot of my perspective, but it has definitely changed enough of the conversation that I have with my no. children. So, yeah. All right. Kelly, thank you. I've really enjoyed our conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm sure we will have you, you back at some point to talk about more in depth, maybe about legal advocacy or some other stuff that you um, deal with here at the agency. 
And I do want to remind you, if you feel like you need our services, uh, we do have a 24-hour hotline. And that number is 1-800-828-7233. If you ever feel like you're in need, give us a call 24 hours a day. It will be answered. If you'd like to contact us about anything that you've heard today or heard, uh, contact us about the conversations and connections or anything else regarding the agency, you can email us at familycrisiscenter at FCCET.com. That's familycrisiscenter at FCCET.com. And as always, be the voice, if not for you, for someone else.